Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of College Knowledge. I'm your host today, Joe Kearns, and we have the honor of being joined by Professor Radcliffe Edmonds. He is the Paul Shorey Professor of Greek and Chair of the Department of Greek, Latin, and Classical Studies at Bryn Mawr College. Professor Edmonds, thank you for joining us today. I'm looking forward to a, a nice conversation. I up front, I took, you know, three years of Latin in high school. It was a requirement. It wasn't something I chose to do. And I am very interested to see how much I can remember, because I can be honest and say I probably, it's still there, but it's not necessarily uh, everything that's, that's there. So, but I, I'm, I'm very uh, peaked today to, and excited to, to talk to you and you know, kind of start, it'll, I know I'm going to have some triggers. Uh, oh, yep. I remember that one. I remember, I remember that, that one. So, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. and, and that is the thing is about um, the classics learning Latin or even Greek, mm -hmm. right? Learning another language at whatever level, at whatever level of voluntary, you know, mm -hmm. um, it is, is something that sticks with you, right? Mm -hmm. You get those structures in your brain, you you think it in, on a in a different way about how language works, and yeah. that's one thing that you take away with you no matter what. Even yeah. if it's just three years of enforced high school Latin, you still <laughs> you still get something out of it. Now, yeah. there's a lot more to that, which sure. is a lot more fun and a lot more interesting and a lot more valuable. But yeah. um, but even that's even that's a that, that's a good a good basis. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, first question is, you know, your background, because I'm sure it's an interesting story to how you got where you are today. I'm sure there, again, if this is what you end up doing as a career, I'm sure it had to be something that you were passionate about for a long time. So what what is your story? Where did you attend school? You know, what did you major yeah, in? I mean, I, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, went mm -hmm. to a public school in St. Louis, where in middle school, I decided to take Latin because okay. I thought it would be fun. Mm -hmm. I was also taking French because I liked languages. Um, and I did both of them through through high school. And um, I enjoyed Latin. Well, what I really enjoyed were the Greek myths, mm -hmm. the stories. Yeah. And that was what really hooked me and sort of kept me going. Um, and then I went off to college. Um, and the first lecture of the first class my freshman year was a big intro, um, intro sort of to Western literature. Okay. And the professor started off the course with which is the beginning of the Iliad in Greek. Okay. And I was just, I was just wowed. You're hooked. I, 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 <laughs> Whoa, that's just so cool. I've got, it. so I took Greek. I got more excited. Another thing that really sort of sparked me on this mm -hmm. was my senior year of high school when I read Plato for the first time. Okay. In AP English of all, of all things. Mm -hmm. um, read Plato's Symposium and just the excitement about reading that text, getting a window into the way people were thinking 2,500 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's the ideas, you know, made my head explode. Sure. Um, um, so it was sort of the combination of those things 
And when I got to college, I was able to dig deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, and I realized that I could just keep going with this. Okay. I could just keep pursuing my interests, however peculiar, however bizarre. And some of my interests end up being pretty bizarre. <laughs> um, uh, but that's all within the field of, of classics. Yeah. Um, so I read, you know, I work on very canonical sort of standards of Western, you know, tradition like Plato, mm -hmm. uh, the founder of the Academy. Um, but I also work on the sort of weird and marginal stuff. Okay. Um, and I find that very rewarding. Uh, okay. Because I get to see these sort of patterns of social dynamics mm -hmm. that play out in the ancient world. And then you can see those same patterns playing out in different ways, but you can still see them in the, in the modern world. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, that distance of 2000 years is, it's a, it's actually a really useful sort of perspective, mm -hmm. right? Because you can see the, the mistreatments, the inequities, the hierarchies, the power struggles, but you're not involved in it. Mm -hmm. Not, you know, you're, you can see how it plays out. You can see how it started. You can see how it ended. And then you can see the same kind of dynamics going on in the current moments. And it's so much messier when you're in the midst of it. Sure. <laughs> you know, I, I have a weird sort of analogy that I, I sometimes use. Um, the, the difference, you know, classics is like doing dissections in anatomy in medical school. Okay. Right? You can learn so much by taking apart and seeing how a system works that you can only do when the body is safely dead, <laughs> um, right? It's gone, it's passed. Yeah. Vivisection has a lot of problems, right? If you try to open up a body and see how it's working in the midst of doing it, there's a lot of mess, there's a lot of confusion. And this is why doctors train by taking apart a body and seeing how it goes. Mm -hmm. It's kind of weird and grotesque image, okay. but that's one of the advantages of studying ancient languages, studying ancient cultures. Mm -hmm. You can see those patterns, you can see the structures of society. I find it endlessly fascinating. That's now you, one of the things I have want to elaborate on is because you said there are some things that may be a little weird that really intrigue you about, you know, so I'm curious, what are, is there a specific, I don't know, area of focus that really intrigues you that you, you kind of just, you, you start it and then you ended up going down this rabbit hole and just, you can't get out of it now. Is there anything in particular? Um, yeah, a couple of things actually. Okay. Um, uh, one is um, ancient mystery cults, and oh. in particular, Orphica, um, which is definitely a rabbit hole that I went into and have never emerged from, um, looking at the peculiarities of that. The other is an, a related kind of thing, which is ancient magic. Okay. Um, and um, that is... That's an area that I have really, really enjoyed researching and teaching um, for the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, and it's uh, endlessly fascinating. Um, mm -hmm. And 
particularly when I talked about the sort of marginalization and you know, looking at these social dynamics, magic is fascinating for studying that because the label of magic is a way of talking about the weird, the mm -hmm. other, right? Yeah. And the way that I approach it is magic isn't a thing, it's a way of talking about things. So okay. when you say that's magic, you mean that that's not normal. Okay. Right? It may be not normal in a really good way. Wow, it's magic, it's miraculous. Or it may be that's not legitimate. That's not real. That's not, right? So <laughs> looking at the way that people use this label mm -hmm. to mark other people, other things, as non-normative, mm -hmm. fascinating. Mm -hmm. Just getting a glimpse into those social dynamics. Yeah. So, um, and the evidence that we have for it is this wonderful range of different things that gives us insight into levels of society that we don't normally get access to. Mm -hmm. um, one of the most fascinating kinds of evidence are these bizarre lead curse tablets. Lead has the value of um, lasting forever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so people would scrawl these curses on a piece of lead and fold it up and bury it, or mm -hmm. even toss it in a well. And it stays. Mm -hmm. right? it, doesn't, it doesn't deteriorate. It doesn't rust. It doesn't rot away. So 2,500 years later, we can still read them. Yeah. And we get this insight into the tensions and conflicts, the anxieties, the worries, the hopes, fears, desires mm -hmm. of a whole range of people who don't normally make it into the history books, mm -hmm. right? These are the shopkeepers or the, you know, the actors or the, the athletes mm -hmm. who they're not normally the ones who are the big players in history who get right. down in. Yeah, yeah. But they were people who had these worries and desires and you know conflicts and they write out their sort of testimony about those yeah right? i curse the owner of the tavern in the next street right. <laughs> who's stealing my business and you know he and his friends have been saying these terrible things about me and may they all you know may their business choke and die and may they you know, yeah. so you you get an insight into these things that in some ways bring that society of the past sure. so much closer to us. Yeah. I mean, some of them are pretty horrible, right. um, you know, yeah. um, but but that's also I mean, that's that's what human society is like. Right. Sure. There are those those terrible hatreds and rivalries and mm -hmm. things like that um yeah and and, and that that kind of uh you know it interests me there because as you're as you're talking about that a couple of things that always come to mind is you know a lot of history can essentially like a lot of things that we are taught especially as, as children that's kind of like people can determine what passes Mm -hmm. And having something like that, that insight of this is not what I've heard. And I, I always use the, uh, there was a, it was one of those times in my life where it just changed like how I view things. And it was this, uh, 
I think it was an HBO special called Assume the Position, I think with uh, Robert Dahl. Uh, but he, you know, he had this whole presentation. It's a fantastic video. But he goes into, there was this, you know, during the Revolutionary War, there was this uh, horse rider and he rode 115 miles. And we all know his name, right? To warn that the British were coming. And every someone says, yes, Paul Revere. He goes, no, Israel Bissell. <laughs> right? And we don't know. And, and, and because he talked about how history is pop culture and history is like it was a poem because it was, you know, hey, listen, my children, and you shall hear the midnight ride of Paul Revere. It was a book. It was a poem. So that's what we're taught, that this is who warned us when historically factual. That's not accurate at all. You know, and it, that's where I was like, oh, my God, like history is is again, it is a lot of pop culture it's it's there are we're higher ups there is a hierarchy and they say well we don't want people to know this so we're going to change it and that's what gets taught and so hearing things oh yeah and then I start to think well you know 2,000 years from now now my mind's going racing yeah. when we're talking about it. I'm going 2,000 years from now how would people look back at this this pandemic that we had you know yeah. you talk about struggle and I, I you know the social anxiety that people have had and the stress over these past couple of years how will people talk about it? You know, is it will be considered like the Black Plague? Will it be considered, you know? So it's kind of like, hey, does that shopkeeper? What if the internet's not around two thousand years? Your blog post doesn't make. It. I might go find a lead pad and, yeah. and bury it in the backyard and say, hey, it just was. so people know, <laughs> it was my experience with it. You know, but it's but it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, and speak particularly thinking of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, I was teaching a Greek history course sort of in the, the midst of, and one of the things in the historian Thucydides is his description of the plague at Athens during the mm -hmm. Peloponnesian War. And it's a vivid description. And one of the things he focuses on is in fact, the social anxieties, mm -hmm. the the way that social rifts start to open up, tensions exacerbate, even the way words change their meaning as mm -hmm. people are, are, you know, and it was so perfect connected yeah. to the experience that we were going through. But when you think about how are people going to look at this 2000 years from now, one of the things about Thucydides is that his description of the plague was so moving, so engaging that Lucretius, when there was a plague in Rome, adapted a lot of Thucydides you know, to talk about his plague. And Boccaccio adapted Lucretius and Thucydides to talk about the Black Plague. In the, so, right, in fact, the way that someone tells the story carries on, right? Mm -hmm. Because it was an effective storytelling, that shapes the way the story is told the next time mm -hmm. and the next time and the next time. So um, that's another thing about, um, about that I love about studying these, these materials is you get to see the stories that have shaped history, um, mm -hmm. the way that things were viewed back then in those circumstances, which are not the same as ours, mm -hmm. but nevertheless, they're useful to think about ours yeah. and have been used to think about contemporary situations again and again yeah. and again and again. Yeah. So. 
Yeah. And just, you know, just even think again, just going back, it's like how I remember growing up, I was always taught the black plague caused by rats, right? Mm -hmm. No, no, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's, but it, it's amazing. And again, you get different perspectives and you get different, you know, the same story can be told from a different viewpoint and just take you in two. You'll think you're reading about a different time, right? You know, it's two separate times in history. It's amazing. And, and that was one of the things I definitely wanted to ask today is, you know, as you talked about, you know, these stories and, and these things from so many years ago and, you know, whether it's mythology or whether it's more factual, um, how much, you know, when you talk about like the divide that, you know, a plague costs and without a doubt, you see our society right now, there, there is a divide and you can go back to almost any point in history and say, well, there was conflict, there was this, there was, and it all mainly about beliefs, you know, I'm right, you're wrong about a particular topic. So, you know, one of my, all, all the interests that I always have is, you know, when you read things when you hear a story from so long ago how it's it relates so well to things where today whether it's things with politics or like a plague like we just talked about what stands out in your mind and i don't know if it's necessarily a question of saying hey everyone go read this book you know where read this story but is there anything that really sticks out to you to, to that you're just looking at it going i can't believe you know we always hear history repeats itself but is there anything else that really would stick out to you to say, here's something from over 2000 years ago that we're seeing, and it's the same thing today. Is there anything that really relates and you connect dots amazingly right now? Well, I mean, Thucydides and the social, you know, and he also talks about social um, strife within the cities and um, the, 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 the conflict between the rich and the poor in every city mm -hmm. and, you know, that is eerily applicable. Um, but there are other things as well that um, in addition to the historians who like Thucydides or Herodotus who map out these patterns that become so familiar. Mm -hmm. There are also, I mean, one of my favorite authors is Plato. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the things that the way just the sort of slice of life that he gives in his philosophical dialogues mm -hmm. so often is so relatable, so surprisingly engaging and funny, which is not what people tend to think of when they think of Greek philosophy. Oh, that's mm -hmm. fun. Right? Yeah. But as I said, one of the things that really sparked me in high school was my first reading of Plato's Symposium. Now, Symposium literally means drinking party. Um, and that's something that still relates to people today. Um, mm -hmm. So, right. And Plato's maybe symposium, a little bit. Yeah. Just a little bit. Right. Yeah. You know, you're te teaching college students. You yeah. Know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. And the, the, the setting of Plato's symposium, it's a, a big, it's sort of a theater crowd. You know, the dramatist Agathon has just won his first prize. He's got this big party going on. All of the leading intellectuals are coming to the party and they decide to talk about love, right? Mm -hmm. And they weave in literature and they weave in, you know, all sorts of cultural and 
there's this sort of flirtatious banter going back and forth between the, the, the people there. There's a lot of fun going on, but there's also a lot of serious conversation about like, how should people relate in society? Mm-hmm. How does this, you know, how do these things work? Um, it's, it's a text that I now teach in Greek pretty much every fall. Mm-hmm. Never get tired of it. There's always something more to be seen, new sides. Mm-hmm. It has played a, you know, in contemporary times, it has played a, an outsized role in the discussions of the place of um, sexuality in society. Um, in the Supreme Court uh, discussions over gay marriage and things like that, mm-hmm. the lawyers are bringing quotes from Plato's Symposium into the mm-hmm. courtroom, right, yeah. as evidence. It's, it's one of those things that shaped our, our, our society in ways that we don't, we don't realize yeah. um, until you start digging in. So that's, that's another text that I think, that text has also had a huge, huge impact on theology mm-hmm. throughout the ages, which yeah. again is not something that you would expect, um, but the description of the philosophical sort of ascent to the divine beauty mm-hmm. by m- moving, sort of abstracting from the beauty of bodies to the beauty of souls, to the beauty of laws, to beauty itself, which is a central part in this dialogue. Mm-hmm. That motion from the physical and embodied and you know, mortal up to the divine has been sort of readapted and recycled and reused in theological thinking, first in in Greek polytheistic, and then in Christian theology and you know and Muslim theology and all of these sort of throughout the ages, this kind of way of thinking about things mm-hmm. has been used and reused and adapted. And yeah. it's digging into the roots of that then helps you understand any of these later sort of forms of it. Yeah. Theology is not everyone's bag. I understand that, but yeah. I, I happen to get, I happen to find it fascinating to see the ways that human beings have imagined the divine and the mortal throughout mm-hmm. the ages. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, whether it's in the Greek myths or in mm-hmm. this sort of more abstract theology, it, you know, those beliefs, the way right. people think about it, shape what they do. Mm-hmm. And if you can't understand why people believe what they believe, you won't be able to understand why they do what they do. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, that, is a, that is a great point. And that's, uh, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I have three young children, you know, they're nine, seven and four. Um, and my nine-year-old just had, you know, this school project where it's essentially getting into different beliefs, different family structures, different. And, you know, the conversation that, you know, I tried to have with them is seek to understand if you don't, you know, it's okay to ask questions. You yeah. know, if you're you realize that, you know, you're not in this 
small window, not everyone is going to have the same beliefs, the same faith, the same thought process as you do. You know, and I and I go back, I know, um, as far as you know, I was raised Catholic. And I know that a lot of the things that I believe today, were basically because of what I was taught, you know, and there's things that I don't agree with, you know, that I hey, 20 years ago, I was like, that's it. And as I've gotten older, and it's like, well, you know, study different religions and, and realize that not necessarily that there's, again, my, my big feeling is that there is no right and wrong. It's your personal belief for, with certain, when it comes to a faith, you know, um, and mine is, I believe what I believe, and I'm not here to try and change your mind, but if both of what we believe in, if we believe the exact opposite, but it both leads to a better society and it's not, then I don't care <laughs> what, you know, you know, that's, 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 and that's what I kind of teach, want to teach my kids. Like, this is a, like, we believe this because we think it has the right morals, right? It, it teaches you certain things that are right and wrong, but it's not that certain things that you believe are necessarily right versus what other people believe is wrong. And that, that's what I tried to, you know, teach him with this project is just, again, seek to understand, yeah. form your own opinion, you know, and, and use what you believe as a, essentially a stepping stone to form your own opinions, but it's an opinion. And you always want to hear other people's opinions because something might change your own mind. Yeah. Um, and that's where I think some of the study of even ancient mythology, I think can really open up your, your eyes and your thought process, even with simple dialogue with people or to understand more where they're coming from. I, I think it's- to get you out of your own head, right? Yeah. To get you out of your own sort of narrow mm -hmm. box is, you know, makes you a better person, makes the world a better place. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I like studying and teaching about the ancient world, the ancient Mediterranean world where the Greeks and Romans were, is it was in fact a wildly multicultural society, mm -hmm. right? Where people had different beliefs, people had different gods, they had different religious systems, they had different, you know, legal and moral codes, and they were all interacting all the yeah. time. We yeah. think of our modern global world as being so unusual. And so, and we're like, how do we deal with, you know, these different cultural clashes? Well, we could look to antiquity mm -hmm. and see some of the ways that they dealt with it. And we can see that was not a good way to deal with it. This one on the other hand, mm -hmm. right? Um, because there are always those, those yeah. kind of contrasts. But, you know, it is get, getting that opportunity to see yeah. cultural, you know, contacts and um, collaborations. And, you know, there's some fascinating ways in which you know, the historian Herodotus travels around and, and talks about the history of other, you know, other cultures, explores other cultures and their, their beliefs. And one of the things that he does, which is very common among the Greeks, is he says, oh, these people call our God this, they call it that, mm -hmm. right? So there's this sort of connection of like, oh, they do this thing that's sort of similar to us, mm -hmm. But they, they use a different name and they do it slightly differently. It's basically the same. Right. right. You know, and when I'm there, I will do what they, you know, tell me to do. And, and yeah. you know, um, so, yeah. so that kind of openness, mm -hmm. I think, is a good is a good lesson to learn. Without a doubt, because I think some of that 
openness that doesn't exist right now in today's society leads to more problems, right? I mean, it's if all of a sudden, I mean, you you see it in almost every, especially from that political standpoint, right? There are beliefs in something. And if you don't believe the same thing I believe, I'm going to call you every, I'm going to hate you. I'm going to, I'm going to disagree with everything else that you, you stand for as a human being. Mm-hmm. Let's take a step back. You know, I, I, well, <laughs> please help me understand, right? Yeah. How do you, and again, I always, I, that's where I think some of the, the issues lie. I'm not here to change anybody's mind. I love having debates. You know, some of my closest friends, we are polar opposites yeah. on certain issues, but I always want to talk about them where other people are like, I don't, I don't want to talk about them. Like it, it's, it, it, I'm not here to change your mind. I want to understand how you came to your, your belief, understand why, because maybe I haven't looked at it that way. And maybe just through the conversation, you're not even trying to change my mind. It may, yeah. you know, it, the more that comes to light, there may be things that I haven't read or haven't studied. And when you point me in that direction, that may actually change my opinion on it. Right. Um, And if you just are closed minded and you're only going to have conversations with people that believe exactly what you believe, how are you to open up and potentially learn more? You know, and that is what a liberal arts college education should be about. Yeah. Yeah. Opening up your mind, Mm -hmm. giving you the tools to experience those new to Mm -hmm. understand those different perspectives those different times those different places those different cultures those different even different ways of approaching people and things whether it's science or humanities or social right there are all sorts of different discourses yeah talking about things and that's 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 why i devote my life to Mm -hmm. teaching in a liberal arts college is because I think that is such a valuable part of forming a person. Yeah. Um, And, you know, there's nothing that can replace it. Yeah. So great segue. (laughs) <laughs> into because then, now we can now because uh, I do want to talk a little bit about you know college and, and life at Bryn Mawr um, but I, I guess the the one question you know that almost in every potential field of study that exists in the college world there's always myths there's always this thing that people believe you know and in the in the real world and when you start studying it's it's not true so not here to be closed-minded I'm here to learn but should you study, you know, in your focus being Greek mythology, mm-hmm. what potential careers, because again, and again, I'm not meant to be, this is where you can change my mind, but I kind of <laughs> look at it and say, well, what careers other than being a professor, mm-hmm. what is there that could potentially, you know, are there other careers on the horizon with these different studies? And, you know, this is a question that I have to address fairly yeah. often from sure. students, from parents, And my answer is, you can do just about anything. Okay. Right. That that classics is not a great major to get you your first job Mm -hmm. because it's not like an engineering degree where you or a chemistry degree where you go right into a business. What it is good for, and actually there are studies that bear this out for most of the humanities fields. What it's good for is 10, 20 years down the line, the jobs that you will be able to get will be richer, deeper, more fulfilling, and 
often pay better too, okay. because the skills you're learning as you analyze the ancient texts and you, um, you know, you learn to analyze those social patterns. You learn to take apart the language and look at its structures. Those are skills that will serve you well wherever you take them, mm-hmm. right? We have got very few of our majors go on to become professors, right? Okay. And that's, you know, that's to be expected and encouraged, right? That's a, you know, um, some of them do become high school Latin teachers um, mm-hmm. and there's always a need for that. Um, but most of them go into other areas. Okay. Um, and as with many humanities fields, exactly the direction they go is not very easy to predict, which realize okay. as a parent sending your child off to college, yep. which I am, um, right? That can be a little nerve wracking. You're like, Absolutely. Oh, what's going to be happening with my child in yeah. five years? But, right, I've had, I've watched my students over the years go off and do so many different amazing things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of one student um, really gifted with Greek and Latin, um, did a senior thesis project with me on funeral rituals in Homer's Iliad. Okay. Fascinating topic. She went off and um, got a job in the public housing sector in her hometown. Um, where she was working on energy efficiency standards for low-income housing. Okay. (laughs) Right? Not something she had expected that she would fall into, but she found she was really good at looking at all of these policy manuals Mm -hmm. and figuring out what was important and what wasn't important. Her bosses kept promoting her Mm -hmm. because she could pick that stuff up so fast, formulate it, and communicate it effectively and efficiently. She ended up going back, getting a master's in public policy. Um, I saw her at a reunion a couple of years ago. She's working in a think tank in Washington now, working on low-income housing in, you know, for on a national sort of basis. She never thought that that would be a direction that she sure. she finds it very fulfilling. Right. She's doing good in the world. She's got a steady job. She's, you know, there are lots of examples mm-hmm. like that of the unexpected path that the skills you have end up being valuable. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the easy, the easy answer for this is law school. Okay. Uh, because law schools love classics majors. Um, not just because they can read Latin, but um, but because of the critical analysis of texts, because of uh, you know an understanding of how rhetoric works and you know how the political kinds of systems fit into the legal material. So we always have students going off to medical school. Uh, I mean, to law school. We also have them going off to medical school. Um, I, you know, was the advisor mentor for a, a student um, a couple of years back, who mm-hmm. is now going to veterinary school in New Zealand. Was this something she expected? No, not really. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but she had done her science courses she, along with her classics courses. And, you know, now she, she spent some time after graduation working on a farm in New Zealand. It was like, this is what I want to do. Once again, her skills as a writer, as mm -hmm. an author, right, are taking her through the rigors of the professional school. Yeah. And I think she'll be a fabulous vet. Um, uh, and we've had students in the past who've gone into veterinary medicine, who've gone into, you know, all sorts of other medical fields. Okay. Um, you know, the thing with the classics degree is it can take you anywhere, mm -hmm. not just being a teacher. Right. Right. I love being a teacher, but that's me. Right. Um, that that's something that I have always loved. My parents are both teachers. Right. This is something that um, I enjoy, but it's not for everybody. Sure. Not everybody would want to do that. And, you know, if the only people who majored in classics were those who wanted to be teachers, we'd have a very small field. Fortunately, there are all of these other directions in which people go. Um, and um, so that's, it's always exciting to find out where, where people have gone. Sure. And as the studies indicate, those jobs that they get into lead them to positions of authority and management um, much faster, end up with a much more sort of well-paying, work-satisfying career mm -hmm. than people who can get a job right out of, with a business degree right out of college. Yeah. And then are like, are my skills still relevant? Do I have to, right? You know, what do I need to do to learn how to do this? Sure. Um, so. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's problem solving. It's again, a perfect example is again, you study different, you know, the past and you understand different cultures and different faiths, beliefs. Well, now you're put into a, you know, a job for public housing and, Mm -hmm. Maybe you can relate. Oh, this is, hey, we don't want to make the same mistakes that happened in the past. You know, oh, I, I, I can see this as being a future problem five years down the road. So we need to avoid this now so that doesn't happen. Wow, you're a genius. Let's promote. I, you know, I can definitely see that. You know, hey, yeah. you, you saw things differently than everybody else was, see, was viewing them. And that's exactly, I mean, and that's a very hard skill to quantify, mm -hmm. right? that ability to see things differently. And yet that's the skill that you learn. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Um, and there's no more valuable skill. Sure. Master. I, I can I agree. The with next that. one is, is being able to write well, but that's yeah. also something that you, you get a lot of in a, in a classics degree. Yeah. And I think, I mean, writing and, you know, I would say the public speaking, you know, being able to communicate, but, you know, those are yep. just valuable skills that you have because I, you know, I, I use the engineering as a perfect example and, you know, we help thousands of clients and, you know, you see engineers and there essentially is a salary peak. There is a plateau. If you stay as an engineer, the engineers that increase, they're the ones that, oh, you're more of the sales with the engineering background. You can speak to things. You can have other problem solving skills. Mm -hmm. And that's where you see, hey, that salary, it might be this, you know, 
graduate with an engineering degree, but then 15 years later, person has other skills, hey, that salary is going to be much higher, you know, down the right. road. That's just a, you know, one career that I typically see, you know, that kind of yeah. stands out. Yeah. And yeah. it's easier actually to move into a managerial position, even in engineering or computing or, mm -hmm. right, from a humanities degree, mm -hmm. then, and acquire the necessary understanding of how the technical aspects work, then to start with the technical stuff and understand the, the how to think outside the box, how yeah. to communicate, how to do those, those other things. Yeah. So um, whenever I, and I frequently, you know, interact with students who are like, well, I really love doing this classic stuff, but my parents think, I should do economics or right. sociology or engineering mm -hmm. um, because they want to make sure I get a job. Right. Um, Which is I, what we say is the purpose of going to college, right? Get a, get right. a higher paying job out of college. Um, I think there's a lot more purpose to going to college because well, yeah. it's not just your, your salary and your job, it's how you are able to enjoy them throughout your life. But that's a more yeah. complicated question. Right. Even even with the question of what kind of a job can you get, mm -hmm. right? I tell them, you know, to follow their heart, follow their passion, because that's what they're going to be good at, mm -hmm. right? They may be sufficiently good at calculating statistics to get, you know, an economics degree and a, and a, a, a business job. But if they hate it, they're not actually going to be very good at it. They're, you know, there's a definite limit to how far they can go with that. Absolutely. Whereas if they follow what they love to do, they will be much better at it. Mm -hmm. And they will be able to see ways in which what they love to do, to think, to understand people, to communicate, to right, can apply to all sorts of other opportunities. Yeah. So. It's always a hard sell for parents. I understand that sure. um, because it's a lot of unknowns mm -hmm. in the future yeah. as opposed to something right on graduation. Yeah. Um, but um, having watched my students who have graduated, you know, they usually bop around to a job or two after graduation before they find something. And sometimes yeah. it's a very different thing than the first couple of things they did, but there's always a thread, yeah. right? That follows their interests and, you know, leads them to where they're meant to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so is, you know, with that, is there, is there any crossover between other fields of study that mix with like i mean specifically at Bryn Mawr, whereas if, if you know if you're you know going to study psychology that there is crossover that they they interlink if you're going to study business economics is there any crossover with other potential degrees that Bryn Mawr offers or is that something that happens at other universities or colleges right i mean Bryn Mawr being a, a small liberal arts college right it we don't have a business program, for example. Mm -hmm. um, we do have an econ major. We have a, a big psych major. Um, we occasionally get double majors 
who do um, uh, classics and something else. Right now, we seem to have a high concentration of classics and math um, majors, double majors, um, because there's a certain kind of analysis that is well suited to both of those those areas. Um, but um, I mean, that's that we've also had, you know, classics in chemistry, classics in biology, um, classics in sociology majors, right? People who are doing two things and they find ways in which they intersect. Mm -hmm. um, but um, one of the things about classics in particular is it is so interdisciplinary, right? It is the study of culture mm -hmm. through language, which means that anything having to do with language or aspect of human culture or art or right or music or poetry or literature, right? All of those things are within the, the study. And so if you want to go in any of those directions and connect with some other, you have the possibility there. So. Okay. so as we wrap up, you know, there's uh, one question we always try to ask, but uh, the one bef before that that I was interested in your take on is obviously in pop culture, there are many movies and TV series and things like that. And when, you know, you always hear the, the books better than the, you know, or, <laughs> but I was, I was curious if there's, are there any movies in your opinion that actually do a a very good job of translating the actual greek myth i mean because we know that there's many but obviously you know you see a movie then you read the book you're like oh the book's much better <laughs> things like that but yeah, are there I mean, any i was curious if there was any that stood out to you as hey that's actually a good representation of you know greek mythology um have to say that Many of the recent movies have not been so great. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> One thing, though, that I would say, I recently saw Hades Town. Okay. Right, which is the the musical um, based on the Greek myth of Orpheus, okay. which is a, a particular interest of mine. Totally recast into a sort of modern setting with a strong sort of, you know. Um, the the realm of the dead is the realm of the capitalist workers right i mean there's a lot of very contemporary sort of stuff the music is sort of modern jazz kind of stuff very very different feel from the greek mm -hmm. brilliant brilliant adaptation of the ideas of the story of the sort of tradition of the orpheus story so yeah, there's some ways in which it can be done really well. Mm -hmm. Some of the recent movies, not so much. Um, but you know, um, <laughs> uh, there and there, there are also you know modern modern books that do a pretty good job of reworking the Greek myths. The Percy Jackson, Rick Riordan series. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe your kids are just they about love the right the age movie. for that. They love the movies. Haven't read the books yet, but they will be. This is, this is the, some of those movies are really bad. Huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, but the books are actually 
pretty good. And mm -hmm. um, the author does a nice job getting, knowing his sources from Greek mythology. He twists and turns them and does all sorts of fun and interesting things with them. But he, he's, he's doing a good job reworking the ancient materials. Mm -hmm. So, um, so those, yeah, no, if, if your kids are, are, are up for reading those, those are, those are a, a fun adaptation of, of Greek myths. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're, they're, I know that that's on their, it's on the list of ones that they're going to be not, I'm going to force them to read, but Hey, they love reading. So, you know, that there's yeah. actually, I know that they would enjoy those. Um, and then the, you know, one thing I, I look at is, you know, for parents uh, or high school students that are hearing this, you know, if they have, you know, kind of a passion, it, do you think that it's something that, or whether they don't, it, do you think that if you decide that this is going to be the major that you go into, that you should be studying it prior to, if this is what you want to go into, is there any advice that you would have for high school students, or is it something that you can start in college? I was just curious what your take it was on that. It is, it's certainly something you can start in college, okay. and that's, that's one of the, you talked about the myths that people mm -hmm. have about these. One of yeah. these, the myths about classics is that you had to start Latin in high school, or you could never be a classics major. Mm -hmm. That's very much not true. Okay. Um, we, you know, every year, increasingly, we, we get students who had no real contact. Maybe their high school didn't have Latin even. Mm -hmm. um, and um, had no real contact, maybe other than Percy Jackson, um, <laughs> for an introduction to the classics. And yet, they take a, a classics course, one of our courses on Greek history or ancient magic or Greek mythology. And they're like, this is cool stuff, right? And they pursue it, they get into it. And, you know, we have a, um, a student who graduated this year who had never thought about classics before coming to, to college. She's, she's now fallen in love with it so much that she wants to go on to graduate. She's going on to graduate school. Okay. Um, and she delved into Greek and Latin when, you know, after she got here and, you know, has, you know, found a deep interest in Plato is really into the sort of platonic philosophy and exploring that more and more deeply. That was not, not on her radar before she came to Bryn Mawr. Yeah. Um, and more and more people need to be able to realize that Classics is a field that is open to anyone, right? It's not just, you know, white guys like me with a name like Radcliffe Guest Edmonds III, <laughs> right, who can do classics. Um, it really is something that is, everyone can relate to in one way or another. Mm -hmm. um, you know, who can, you can find all of these points of contact, whether it's in myth or in politics or in, right, all of these, these moments of, of, of contact that can spark your passion. Mm -hmm. um, if you've done some Latin in high school, it may be a good thing, or it may actually set you back because you hated it so much that you're like, I'm never doing that again, which is a pity. But 
right? Um, we, we, I would say a good half of our majors have not done that before, before coming. Got it. Okay. And what is, uh, you know, is there anything that you would say is a little bit different about you know, if someone is interested and say, hey, you know, maybe I want to be an attorney or but I want to go this route to see, you know, again, because, you know, I always you kind of say, hey, don't. How you how you explained it, one of the things I look at, I say, well, this is a potentially a major that could take you in many different directions, whereas if you have a specific major, it's like that's where you got to go. And if that's mm -hmm. not a good fit, now what? So right. it was funny because I, I uh, just happened to look up uh, as you were talking about that. It didn't pique my interest until today. Uh, there was a you know person I went to grade school with, and I remember um, he was studying. I think it was uh, it was actually ended up being like ancient Aramaic is what he studied at Notre Dame. Okay. Yeah, and I'm like, what's that going to do, right? And so. Uh, I remember that he got a job at the post office. I'm like, okay, well, is that what happens? Like, well, now he's an attorney and the head of his own law firm. Yep. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like, oh, okay. Like, hey, there's, you know, that exactly what you said. There's, hey, you might have pattern, this job here right? or there. Yeah. Um, but it was just interesting on that. But is, when I go back to, you know, Bryn Mawr, is that study at Bryn Mawr different? is the teaching of this a little bit different than other universities that you know of? Or is it, you know, what's life like at Bryn Mawr compared to other schools? So Bryn Mawr is a strange anomaly in that we're a very small liberal arts college, right? Mm -hmm. 1300 students, but in a couple of fields and classics is one of them, we have a graduate program. And that makes studying classics at Bryn Mawr different from mm -hmm. studying classics at pretty much any other small liberal arts college in that there is no ceiling, right? You can just keep on going to more and more advanced levels and do graduate work while still an undergraduate, do graduate level research while still an undergraduate. Um, that's a huge, huge advantage. Um, that we're, we're able to offer um, at Bryn Mawr. We get all of the advantages of the small liberal arts college. That is to say these very small classes, you know, close contact with the professors, lots of sort of, you know, one-on-one -on -one work um, and, you know, opportunities for summer research. I'm supervising two undergraduate research projects this summer. Um, but, right, you also, have the the sort of resources and capacities that you would normally only find at a large research university. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I went to a, a research university. I went to Yale as an undergrad, and when I got to the end of you know to the upper levels of my classes, I was in courses with graduate students. I was taking those. That's something that's available at a large place or large research place, but usually not at a small place. Okay. And I love the atmosphere of the small liberal arts college. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, one of the things I've loved about teaching at Bryn Mawr the last two decades is um, this sort of combination of those two things, 
mm-hmm. right? That small atmosphere with all of its advantages yeah. and the sort of high level uh, and intensity that comes with having this sort of advanced resource as well. Mm-hmm. So, Bryn still women's college, correct? Myanmar is still a women's college. So that's another anomaly. And it does rule out, you know, um, a a portion of the population Mm -hmm. want to study there. Our graduate program has always been co-ed back from the 1880s. But um, uh, so, right. Bryn Mawr is like most small liberal arts colleges, you know, a place with a very strong culture of its own. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because it's a small community, people find their way to fit into that um it is a great place to for a young woman who wants to have her intellectual life taken seriously Mm -hmm. to go um Mm -hmm. because she'll be in a community filled with other young women who take their intellectual life seriously and that's that's so important and so fulfilling for for those students yeah all right last question as we wrap up and out of left field much like the movie question uh (laughs) most influential or favorite book that you've ever read so um i mean i think in terms of influencing my professional career plato's symposium Mm -hmm. no question is the is the the book that set me on the path that I have, you know, has shaped the way I think about the world, done more more things. Yeah. Um, for a more contemporary thing, I would have to say Tolkien's Lord of the Rings was okay. deeply influential in um, shaping the way I think about stories. Okay. Which which is another. Uh, crucial part of my life yeah thinking thinking about stories and yeah who tells stories and how stories are told sure so, yeah yeah i i remember when i was uh, when i finished reading that again years ago it's just it's funny you say that because again how it changes views uh, for some reason after reading that i was like was this on the lead tablet that tolkien found buried in his backyard and this was actually a time prior that we didn't know about like I that's how I remember that that was one of those things that I always used to look at so it's interesting he does such a good job at building that world right it's 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 like it had to have been real like there's it no it had to have been real we just didn't know about yeah yeah no I mean and he is unparalleled at that sort of world building Mm -hmm. um and uh and you know, actually, when I teach a, my uh, advanced seminar on myth, we read an essay of Tolkien's about world building mm-hmm. um, and think about how the Greek myths build their own kind of world. Yeah. Um, and he has some amazing insights into that as well. Yeah. So, Well, we are out of time. Professor Edmonds, thank you so much for joining us today. Highly, you know, enlightening and, and enjoyed our, our conversation. I hope that uh, a lot of parents maybe don't look, maybe have a different view if their child so. says, hey, I want to I study ancient mythology and, you know, what that potentially could lead to. Um, but this was, this was great. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining us uh, and thank make sure to uh, 
Yeah, and make sure to tune in again next week for another episode of College Knowledge. Thanks for joining us. All right. Thanks very much.